0: Okay, so today is Flag Day, for all of you following along at home, and you couldn't hear, today is Flag Day. Um, That's right, Uh, June 14th, uh, not 19, 1777, um, was when the United States flag was adopted by the Second Continental Congress. Uh, Two years prior to that was when the uh, Continental Army was formed, so it's also the uh, birthday of the United States Army. Do we have any Army vets? Are they all Air Force vets here? No, all, Air, Air, all the Air Force people went, sorry, no. Okay, so it's also the uh, birthday of the United States Army. Um, so we've got our American flag. Okay, we, we keep it up here all the time. Let me put it on the screen too, so in case anybody doesn't know what the American flag looks like. Ooh, ooh, there it is, there you go, American flag. Um, so we could go through and we could tell the story about the American flag and all the different things, Betsy Ross and all that stuff. But I found an inter- interesting tidbit, it's hard to say, I found an interesting tidbit of information this week. And this is where my wife goes, nerd alert, nerd alert. Okay. Does anybody know the story of how we got the 50 star flag other than, you know, having 50 states, right? Does anybody ever heard that story of where the design came from? No? Nobody? Well, good. Okay. So here we've got our 50 star flag. Um, It was at the end of the 1950s. uh, There was some talk about... Uh, potentially Alaska joining the union, and uh, there was also talk of Hawaii joining the union and being an official state uh, and getting their statehood and all of that. Uh, So there was a young boy in uh, high school. His name was Bob Heft. Uh, So Bob Heft had to do a history, uh, history project for his history class, um, and so there's different things going on and all of this stuff. And, and he was thinking about the flag. And so what he decided to do was to design a flag that had 50 stars on this. And it was before the states were uh, officially granted statehood and, and all of that. And so um, what he did was this teenage boy. Okay, So imagine somebody like Elijah Pridgen, uh going to his parents and taking his parents' flag that has 48 stars. Uh, taking some scissors and getting his mom's sewing machine. And this is what happened. He, he cut up the flag and sewed it back together, adding two extra stars. And he, when, when he did interviews talking about this, he, he talked about how um, you know he was trying to design it in such a way so that it, it didn't really look different, but it was still having two extra stars and the, the pattern was still similar. And so he, he added the stars in there, sews it all back together with his mom's sewing machine, takes it into class, puts it on his teacher's desk. And when his teacher walks in, he, he asks, you know, what, what is this? Uh, he says, well, that's my, my project. And so he opens it up, he looks at it. And the teacher apparently said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And so he gave him a B minus. True story, gave him a B minus. Um, and so he was upset, Bob was upset. Uh, wanted an A, thought he did it. He did a lot of work, sewing, cutting, all of this stuff. He had a friend apparently who got a bunch of leaves and like glued them on paper and turned it in and he got an A. And he didn't get an A for his American flag that he designed. So Bob ended up sending it to his congressman, Congressman Walter Muller. Uh, When the two states were accepted, um, after the first, uh, it was Alaska, and then Hawaii, when Hawaii was finally granted statehood, uh, this congressman sent it to President Eisenhower. Bob apparently wrote 21 letters to the White House and called 18 times. Uh, His mom was upset because he ran up the long-distance phone bill, Um, but on July 4th, 1960, uh, the President Eisenhower accepted this design that we now have as a 50-star flag from Bob that he had turned in. So he went back to his history teacher and his history teacher changed his grade to an A, uh, apparently saying, uh, if it was good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. So here's a picture. This is Eisenhower uh, unfurling the 50-star flag for the first time. Uh, and this is a picture of Bob just before he passed away uh, there. There's a bunch of, I was looking for a picture of him Apparently he was at the, uh, the ceremony on July 4th, 1960. I couldn't find any pictures of that, but this is him uh, just before he passed away. He's also supposedly designed a 51 star flag just in case we ever add another state sometime in the future, but that's flag day. So I was thinking, knowing that today was Flag Day, thinking about what I was going to be speaking on, and that's kind of where my mind went to the, the history of the flag and all of that. And of course, if we're here at church and we think about the American flag, we turn to the other side and we see the Christian flag. Um, and this one, so this is another interesting story where we got the Christian flag. I was wondering one day, I was working in, a, in an Olympian club. I was the Olympian, uh, what do they call it, head, head coach? whatever they call it in the, with the little kids. Okay. Um, and they were doing their pledges like we do every Olympian club, you know, pledge to the American flag, pledge to the Christian flag, pledge to the Bible. And I'm like, where, where did this even come from? Like who came up with this? So I looked it up. Um, and it was actually in 1897, a guy named Charles Overton. He was the Sunday school superintendent at a church in Brooklyn, New York. And I know this never happens here, but uh, he had to give an impromptu speech to open Sunday school, right? His speaker didn't show up and it was like, hey, Bob, go, go do this. So, um, not Bob, Charles. Um, so he comes up and he starts to give a speech to open Sunday school, right? Is all in the assembly all together. And he's, he's talking, he sees an American flag. It makes him think of, you know what? We're Christians, right? And yeah, we're Americans, but we obviously have citizenship in heaven as well, we should have a Christian flag. And so he starts talking about what a Christian flag would look like and what he thinks it would represent and different things on there. So about 10 years later, uh, Charles Overton and a guy named Ralph uh, Diffendorfer come up with this design that we have here, right? Mainly white with the blue in the corner and the cross and each of those different things stand for for different things that they came up with. But they designed this flag. Um, It's not copyrighted, right? Because it belongs to all of Christendom, they said. Um, And then they also came up with a pledge to it. Now the original pledge um, is rather... uh, all-inclusive, let's just put it that way. The original pledge says, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one brotherhood uniting all mankind in service and in love. Okay, kind of very all-inclusive. And that was kind of the, the circles that these guys ran into. We, of course, here at Community, use kind of a more conservative and specific version of that. Any of our kids want to say they pledge to the Christian flag? Anybody? No, Jesse. No, he's shaking his head. Okay, um, so we do we do the pledge to the Christian flag, and we'll do this in our Olympian clubs and all of that. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. And so we say this because you know it kind of represents right um, our, our you know Christianity, and there where we kind of recite even in there the gospel. Right, uh, Jesus died rose and he's going to come back again one day. And that, like I said, sprang from this idea that we as Christians, okay, this is awesome. We've got the American flag. We live in an awesome country. I love our country. I've got American flag socks. Uh, It's awesome. But it's from this idea in Philippians 3.20, and I briefly put it up here, okay? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where I want us to kind of focus our attention this morning, um, and, and this idea of citizenship. So let's think about citizenship. We understand this today, right? If you have to travel anywhere out of the country, you get a nice little booklet with your passport and your picture on it and all of that. And you know, citizenship means something, um, but not quite what it meant back back here in the first century. right? We understand, okay, we're a citizen of this country. We've got certain rights. We can vote. We can do different things. Uh, hopefully, you're not overseas when something big happens like a global coronavirus pandemic and have to get on a plane and, you know, get, get, get back into your own country. Um, when I was uh, in college, the president of um, Word of Life Bible Institute, uh, he was actually in Egypt um, doing doing a ministry trip, and he was over there when uh, the civil war broke out in, in Egypt, and there were issues going on there. And he he and his wife and a couple of their friends that were there on this ministry trip had to get out. And so they were going around and trying. You know, he said that they were out walking one day, and they're going down a street and see tanks coming the opposite direction. So they you know are trying to go around and stay away from everything. But then he gets to the airport trying to get out, and it was his American passport that allowed him to get on a certain plane that had been specially reserved for American citizens by the, the embassy so that they could get the Americans out of Egypt during this time. So citizenship is a good thing, right? We, we've got our citizenship. There's certain protections and rights. And it was like that back in the first century when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. Right? They, they understood citizenship, and it was, it was a big deal. Not everybody in the Roman Empire was a, was a Roman citizen. Uh, and there were certain things that kind of went along with that. Um, You obviously had extra rights if you were a Roman citizen. You had extra protections. Um, Only citizens actually living in Rome got to vote in certain things, but within each city, right, you you could vote. Normally, you had to be a landowner to be able to have citizenship and and vote um, for the different things in that city. Um, uh, You weren't necessarily born with it, but you could be in certain situations. If you were in certain cities, you could have Roman citizenship. If you came from certain families, you could have it. You could also purchase citizenship. If you look at the story in Acts 22, when Paul is being arrested and he starts claiming you know, that he's a Roman citizen, the, the, the Roman soldier who has him or the, the, the leader of them, I think it was a centurion, um, he, he makes a big deal. He says, how can you, you know, right? you're just some crazy Jewish guy. How do you have Roman citizenship? I had to pay a lot of money for mine. And so it was a big deal, right? It's something that people would pay money to get. Um, But, you know, like I said, you had special rights. If you read about Paul, okay, he used it sometimes when he was arrested in Jerusalem. He used that to, to, you know, be allowed to have special um, uh, court proceedings and different things along there. Sometimes he wouldn't claim his citizenship right up front, though, when Paul was in Philippi which this is you know, relevant since we're reading in the book of Philippians. Um, we know the story of the Philippian jailer and how Paul and Silas were, were arrested and they were beaten and they were thrown in prison and they sang through the night and God sent an earthquake and um, the Philippian jailer was going to commit suicide because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. And Paul says, no, don't, you know, don't do that, don't do that. We're all still here. And eventually from that, the man you know, accepts Christ as his Savior. And then that next day the rulers that had arrested Paul and put him in prison, had him beaten, they're like, ah, just let him go. And that's when he throws this down and says, you just had us bound and beaten and put in prison for the night, and we're Roman citizens, and you're just going to let us go like nothing happened? No, you need to come here and get us out of prison and walk us out yourself. And then, So they were kind of scared. They're like, oh no, you know, we could get in trouble for what we just did. So this was a big deal, having citizenship, and the people in Philippi understood that because this was actually a Roman colony. There had been a a big battle uh, in in the the Roman Empire. There was the the Civil War going on, and Philippi had been founded um, a a while back, and it it was a, a prestigious city, but then there was the battle of Philippi between Octavian, who eventually became Caesar Augustus, and Brutus, um, and there was actually two parts to the battle. And anyway, we don't need to go into all that. But after this battle, it ended the civil war. You know, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, wins that battle and he doesn't need his army anymore. Um, all of the younger people or higher ranking people in the army go back to Rome, but all of the older soldiers and the people that weren't really going to fight anymore, they retired and just stayed there in Philippi. So here you've got all of these Roman soldiers, former Roman soldiers, and their descendants. You've got all of these, you know, really strong, you know, proud Roman citizens. And now as the church in Philippi grows, many of them are part of the church. And so here you have a bunch of people in this church at Philippi with Roman citizenship. They're proud of it for good reason, right? They're proud of their heritage. And then Paul is writing to these people And he uses that idea of citizenship as an example. He he reminds them, look, even though you are a Roman citizen, your true citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to focus their attention here on this idea of, yeah, you've got Roman citizenship, but your true allegiance is in heaven. And the, they understood, okay, a citizen had a certain way they would act. Um, and there's actually some verses, there's, there's a Greek word that the word for citizen had some you know, other uh, forms that would you know, explain different ideas with citizenship. And here's a couple, Paul here, he's, he's talking to the council in Acts 23, and it says, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day the word that's translated there lived my life what that means the the you know kind of a direct translation is i have made my conduct like a good citizen my citizenly conduct has been good before god thinking of you know the way a, a citizen of heaven would act and so he says he's he's lived his life that way here in philippians okay we're in philippians 127 it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's that same word. The, the idea of the way a citizen would conduct themselves. Right? You're going to carry yourself as a citizen in that country different than you would if you're in a country and you're not a citizen of that country. Right? When you're a tourist, everybody can tell, um, especially if you're a bunch of missionaries on a mission trip in Jamaica. Right? Everybody can tell that you're not from around here. But here in this verse, he's telling the Philippians, hey, your manner of life, the way you conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I guess our question this morning is, you know, what is it? How does a citizen of heaven conduct themselves? What is that really, um, what is that really about? How should we really look? And it helps if we look in the context of that verse there in Philippians 3. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to expand out a little bit from this verse. Um, if you were reading along earlier, you noticed that I stopped in the middle of a sentence. Okay. Um, we're going to look at the context of Paul, what he's actually saying when he's reminding the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven. So let's start in Philippians 3 uh, verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So here, uh, Paul, what he's doing when he, he... writes that verse saying, our citizenship is in heaven, it starts the sentence with the word, but, right? He's contrasting a citizen of heaven with these other people that he's writing about. And we'll, we'll get to it earlier in Philippians chapter 3. He's specifically talking about the Judaizers, right? They've got, they, they, they come into the church and they say, hey, you know, that's great that you believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus plus do all of these rules that were in Judaism, you know, be circumcised and follow the, you know, the, the law and do these sacrifices and do all these things. And he writes here at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, you know, disproving that, and then here he's talking about them and he's explaining them. And he's saying, you know, imitate me, imitate those of us that walk, you know, by this example. Look at these other people, right? Uh, they're enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And so right there, put in contrast with citizens of heaven, we have these people who are enemies of the cross, And so they have their minds set on earthly things, but you're citizens of heaven. So right here, we've got this first contrast where we see that we need to set our minds. You need to set your mind on things above. It's that direct contrast right there, right? They set their minds on earthly things, but you're a citizen of heaven. So set your mind on things above. Pastor Jeremy, when he was going through... um, the, the study in Colossians, he kind of went through all of these different contrasts on the difference between, you know, setting your mind on things above uh, and the things of the earth. And he, he went through a bunch of different verses. Some of these, so here in Colossians, um, oh, I already had that verse up there. Here in Colossians 3, verse 2, um, it says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So this is a very clear command, right? You need to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. In Romans, it says it this way, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, earthly things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. So what does it mean to set your mind on things above? Um, this, This word, okay, another Greek word here, it means set your mind. It means to dispose the mind a certain way or to direct one's attention towards something. So it's a, it's a command, it's, you know, it's what your disposition is, what you're intentionally directing your attention towards. And you can do that, right? You can direct your mind in a certain way, you ponder, you think about, you meditate on, you know, that's just the way your entire life is, is oriented. You have to point your life in a certain direction, point your mind in a certain direction, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, setting our mind, directing our mind to spiritual things not to earthly things. Um, when I think about what this actually looks like, because that's one of those things we can you know, say all day long, um, but it's hard to do. Uh, when the deacons were meeting in there, I made a joke, I should just stand up and say, all right, everybody, think about Jesus. Let's pray. You know, It's really easy to just say, set your mind on things above. Just think about spiritual things all the time, and we can go on. Well, what does that actually look like every day for people living in LaGrange or Goldsboro or, you know, for us, right? Right now, what does this look like? And we can pull out a couple of examples. There's a couple of things that um, stuck out to me when I was thinking about what what this actually looks like. The first thing that that came to mind was the the verses in, in Hebrews 11 that talk about Moses. Okay, Moses, we know, um, he, he, right, the, the baby in the basket and send him down the river. And uh, he was, you know, kind of a, sort of adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and, and all of this. And, uh, you know, we know about Moses, okay? But what does it say? If you, you flip in your Bibles over there to Hebrews 11, um, and in Hebrews 11, it, it kind of focuses our story down to, to this idea of how Moses was a good example in setting his mind on things above. So there in Hebrews 11, um, verse 24, and it says a lot about Moses, but we're just going to read these um, couple of verses here. Hebrews eleven twenty-four 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin." He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here, Moses, right? He's, he's in you know, the palace, uh, or at least around the palace. Uh, he was set up, right? Had a good education. had had all of the opportunities. Egypt at that time was the greatest nation in the world. It was strong. It was a military power. It was rich. And he's there, um, even in an adopted position. And he chose rather, and obviously this is a very much a cliff notes version of that story. Okay, There's many, many chapters about all the things that happened here. But here the the Bible tells us that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he had the opportunity, right? Here's all of this stuff. Here's a good job. Here's good money. You're in a good house. You've got all of these good things. And you can enjoy them and do all of these things, but God was calling him to a greater purpose. And so with his mind not set on the earthly things, look at all this stuff that I've got right? Look at how awesome this is. He chose to follow God's leading and go over here and be mistreated with the people of God and lead them and be you know, one of the greatest Bible characters that we know of, right? Leading the people of God as a prophet of God, you know, uh, on Mount Sinai. All of these stories we know about Moses because he, when he had the opportunity, he had his mindset on things above, Right? God is calling me to do this. God is leading me here. God is doing this. Instead of enjoying my nice, cushy job and my cushy house and all of this money, right? God was leading him, and he followed that leading. Um, you know, if there was ever an opportunity, right? He could have said, you know what? I can, I can be good here. I've got even a position of power, maybe of influence, right? I can talk to Pharaoh as in this position, and, and it might work out better. No, God had different plans. God said, you know what, don't set your mind on things of the earth, set them on things above, right? Orient your life to the things above. And then God led him. Now, I am not saying that everyone needs to give up their job and sell their house and go out and, you know, be a missionary in Africa someplace, okay? That's, that's not what they're saying. But what we are saying is set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Um, I was just reading uh, last night and then this morning, I'm, I'm working my way, re- re-reading a book uh, by Ray Pritchard about Elijah. Um, not Elijah, but the actual prophet Elijah in the Bible. Um, and it, he, he's going through, it and he actually just got, I got to this chapter where he's talking about the call of Elisha. Okay, it's really hard. Don't get those confused, Elijah and Elisha. Okay, so it was the call of Elisha. And when Elijah comes up to Elisha, Elisha is plowing in the field with 12 yoke of oxen. Um, and so, you know, that, that shows that he was, um, one, not willing not unwilling to work, right? He's willing to get his hands dirty working, but he's from a wealthy family. 12 yoke of oxen was really you know, valuable back then. It's really valuable today too, but um, even more so back then because they were useful and you could plow. And so he's out there and he's got his servants are on the other 11 yoke and he's on the 12th, 12th yoke. Uh, and Elijah comes up and throws his cloak over him, right? as kind of a sign of God's calling. And then it goes off and Elisha runs after him, says, hold on, let me say bye to my parents and then we'll, I'm going with you. And we see that he goes back and he actually sacrifices the 12 yoke of oxen and burns the plows and you know, is, is essentially saying, I'm not turning back to this, I'm following the way God's leading me. And that's another great example because he was doing what God called him to do, right? He was a good Israelite. He was working the family business. He was doing that in that moment, the very ordinary, simple thing of plowing his fields because that's what God had called him to. But as soon as God decided to change that, he had dropped it and followed God. He wasn't thinking, oh, but I got to take care of my family. Oh, but look at all these great things, these great things God has given me. No, he was willing to say, you know what? There's a clear call of God. I'm going to follow God and go with him. And so he burnt the plows, and sacrificed the oxen, and kind of had a little going away party, feeding all of the servants from the oxen, and then he's gone. And then we read chapters about Elijah and Elisha, and then how Elisha followed the example of Elijah. And it's another great story that we have of someone who set their mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Not that they neglected the things here, but that they were willing, wherever God led, even in simple things, they were willing to do what was in front of them, and when God changed their course, they changed their course. And so they had their minds set on things above. Um, it also kind of made me think of uh, this story of, of a guy named uh, William Borden. Uh, William Borden was a missionary uh, in the early 1900s. And there's a story about him. You can, you can read uh, his biography, Borden of Yale 09, it's 1909 not 2009 okay hence the black and white picture okay but william borden uh, he was from a wealthy family as well his, you notice in a trend here he was from a wealthy family and his parents gave him a graduation present of a trip around the world on this trip across europe africa and asia he developed a desire for the lost and wrote home of his desire to be a missionary upon return even though he was already wealthy Uh, He enrolled at Yale and was reported to have written in his Bible the words, no reserves. He had turned his back on his family wealth and he was going to college studying the Bible. At Yale, Borden recounted a convocation speech by the university president on the need for having a fixed purpose, but wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. So here is this idea, right? Set your mind, have a fixed purpose, but they stop short. What do we fix our purpose on? So he began a Bible study and prayer meeting that grew to the point that by the time he was a senior, over 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale attended some kind of group prayer meeting every week. He also got connected with a student volunteer movement, a movement of college students committed to reaching the world for Christ. God placed the Muslim uh, Kansu, I don't know how to pronounce that, Kansu people of China or in China on his heart. After graduation, he turned down many high-paying jobs to continue his graduate studies at Princeton. Supposedly, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. After finishing his studies at Princeton, he set sail for China by way of Egypt for the purpose of studying Arabic. While in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And on April 9, 1913, at the age of 25, William Borden died. The news was widely reported back in the United States. And supposedly, upon finding his Bible, it was found that prior to his death, William Borden added two final words. No regrets. So that that really sums up this whole idea. You know, here uh, I was reading an article about this where they said, you know, one of the most influential missionaries of the 20th century never actually made it to the mission field. Talking about William Borden. And here he is. He's got all of these opportunities, all of this money, right? Born into it. But he decided, you know what? No reserves. I'm not holding anything back from God. Anything is God's. No retreats. Right, I'm not going back. Here's all these high-paying jobs. I could you know, follow in the family footsteps and have a high-paying job and make my own fortune, but he turned it down. No, no retreats. And even though he never actually made it to China where he was endeavoring to go, he ended his life with no regrets. And that's a good example for us. We know if we set our mind on things above... If that's what our focus is, we orient our lives in that direction so that no matter what God puts in our path, whether it's, you know, just a simple job where we can be an influence for Him in our little sphere, or whether it's going to the mission field, um, we can live our life with no regrets as a citizen of heaven. Understanding everything is spiritual. Right? Our minds are set on things above, not on things of the earth. We're focusing on what God has for us, not you know, what we think is best. But there's another dimension to all of this. Okay? Um, we backed up and we read uh, starting in verse 17 here in Philippians 3. Let's go another paragraph up uh, and let's look at Philippians 3. Let's start in verse 12. Because this idea of a citizen of heaven, it it kind of expands a little bit more the further we go up. Um, Again, for context, he's just talked about all of these Judaizers and, you know, they're, they're trying to do these things that are religious. And he's saying, you know, they're not worth anything. We should reject them. We need to focus on a relationship with Christ. And so he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true... To what we have attained. So here in this context, again, he's, he's denouncing the Judaizers. He's saying you need to focus on Christ and your relationship with Christ. That's what it's about, right? This would be the passage you go to to show it's not a religion; it's a relationship, right? He says in there that I may know Christ Jesus. That's what he's pressing towards, and he's saying that with all his being, he's pursuing this relationship with Jesus. So, we're supposed to press toward the goal. This is the Olympian theme verse, right? With their prayer, or with their pledges, then every club night they also say the Olympian theme, which is from this verse here, verse 14, right? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, the idea, okay, press on. We had set your mind, right? You orient yourself towards this. Here's the, the word for press on, uh, Dioko. Um, which means to pursue or even to persecute. And if you look in the the greater context of Philippians 3, um, Paul talks about, hey, I, this word, dioko, I persecuted, I pursued the church, you know, because I was zealous for Judaism. So I was going after them, right, to kill them or to put them in prison at least. But then he changes and he talks here in these verses we read that he presses on to make it my own, right, his relationship with Jesus, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Um, in his commentary on this section, uh, Ben Gutierrez, uh, who's a professor up at Liberty, he said, we should pursue Christ twice as much as we did sin before we were saved. Right? Paul is telling his testimony. He said, I pursued this stuff over here. Right? I pursued the Christians. I was trying to get them. But now that Christ got a hold of my life, I'm pressing towards Him, and I'm pressing on, and I'm trying to, to make that my own. I'm working on my relationship with Jesus. That's what it's all about. I'm pressing toward the goal. Um, and as you read here, there's a lot of, a lot of race imagery, right? Um, the idea of the, the, the marathon, right? The Olympic marathon, and, um, you know, the, the running, right? Press on toward the goal, right? Towards the finish line, um, and it, it, it has the, the imagery of the, the Olympic marathon during Roman times. And during Roman times, uh, they would run, they would run naked. Okay, so we don't, I'm not going to interact with that in right now. But um, so they'd be running this race. And, and at the finish line, it would be in, you know, the, either the Colosseum or a Colosseum of some type in whatever city it was held in, whether it was the, the actual Olympic games or was the Isthmian games or whatever, um, the finish line would be there at, at the, uh, the Colosseum in the big area, all of the spectators and stuff. And Caesar, um, or whoever was presiding over it, which in the Roman Empire, if it was a big deal, Caesar would be there. And so he, was, he would be sitting up in the stands kind of watching over the finish line. But surrounding him, he would have all of the former winners of the marathon. Um, and depending on what event in the Olympics back then you were uh, competing in, if you won that event, essentially you were set for life. Okay, uh, they would you know have a big parade in your hometown when you got home after these games, and they would you know carry you into the city. They'd bust a new hole or a, a new gate into the wall to carry you through, and you'd just be set up for life. And so all of these former winners would be there wearing their nice Roman togas and all of that. And, and it's the idea here at the end of the race, they're straining towards, right? That's what it says here. They were straining towards, forward, to what lies ahead, towards that, that finish line. It's the idea of stretching out, right? You're trying to get to it. You're in a, a sprint at the end of the race trying to get across that line before the other guy. Uh, and so you're really, I mean, just watch any of the, uh, these races um, and you'll see that. If it's a sprint finish or if it's one of the shorter races that the guys are close together, you know, you see Usain Bolt or, you know, whoever it is, you know, just trying to get across the line, putting all of their energy into getting across that finish line. And that's the imagery he puts here, right? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward that goal to the finish line. Right, the finish line that God has for us. Specifically, our relationship with Him is what this is talking about. And so, He's running, He's trying to get across this line, and He's pushing it, pushing it, trying to get there, putting all of His energy into it. And it says that the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because what would happen is at the end of the race, you've got your winner, right? And the, they would you know, say whoever the winner was and all of that, and they'd get the silly little wreath on their head. Um, but that wasn't the prize because that's just a little wreath that's going to you know, shrivel up and die. The big deal was then whoever was presiding over the games, specifically Caesar in many cases, he'd look down and he would call up that winner to then join what was referred to as the cloud of witnesses. So when we read in Hebrews 12, after recounting all of these things in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, all of these people, the writer of Hebrews says, seeing we're compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? All of these people that have finished their race, right? The prize here in Philippians 3 is that call to come up and join them. So the prize for us finishing our race well is for God to call us up and join Him in heaven. And we get to enjoy that. So where we're you know, focusing on heaven, we're having our mindset on things above, we're pressing on towards this goal, towards our relationship with Jesus, doing what He wants us to do, straining forward. And then when God says that we're done with our race, whenever that happens to be, whether it's at 25, like William Borden, or whether it's 95 or 105 or whatever it happens to be, for us, we get to be called up to be with God in heaven. And so where we've been working on a relationship with Him and straining and putting our energy into getting to know Him better through His Word, through our quiet time, through coming to church, through fellowship, being with other believers, and we're trying to get to know God better, And growing our relationship with Him and putting our energy in that and thinking about things above and having our mindset that way, finally, we get to know Him perfectly in heaven. How great is that gonna be, right? To be in heaven and be with Jesus. Yeah, it's exciting. We're gonna see the people that have gone on before us, right? That cloud of witnesses. They'll all be there, but the awesome part is that our Savior will be there and we'll get to see Him. And have a perfect relationship with him. And that's awesome to think about. And so as we think about this and we think about, you know, looking ahead, and we think about orienting our mind on, on spiritual things and thinking about heaven and thinking about being with Jesus one day. There's this quote, and you know, I looked it up and there's conflicting things on the internet. Surprise, surprise. Um, Masks help, they don't help, right? Stay at home, go out. I don't know. Anyway, you read this quote, um, and and it's conflicting who actually said the quote originally, but it's this idea of someone is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Right? Think of some, you know, this this idea of somebody just sitting there always dreaming about heaven and thinking about heaven and wanting to go to heaven, and there's like, there's people here that, you know, need your help. So I can kind of understand this sentiment. But there's this quote, this is from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and this is, this is what he said there. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have uh, largely cease to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I think this kind of sums up our idea of being citizens of heaven. All right, we are citizens of heaven. Yes, we're citizens of the United States of America. Yes, we can celebrate a patriotic holiday about our flag, and that's awesome. I love patriotic music, especially if it's brass. Okay? Get Carlton to play some uh, brass patriotic songs for us. But we are called as citizens of heaven to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We are called to press on in our relationship with Jesus. And if we are doing that, then it will lead to our actions here on earth. Setting our mind on things above, pressing on to our relationship with Jesus doesn't mean we're always just sitting around with our nose in our Bible. It means that we're not just hearers, but we're doers, and we obey the things that God has told us to do. If we love Jesus, right, we'll keep His commandments. Our relationship with Him then leads to us obeying and doing the things He's called us to. So let's kind of just wrap this up with some questions. Is your mind set on things above, not on things of the earth? Is your mind set on things above, not on things of the earth? This is something only you can answer for yourself, right? The Holy Spirit working in your life, helping you evaluate yourself. Is your mind set on things above? Are you straining forward, pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Is that what your life is about? Whether it's plowing the field like Elisha, whether it's leaving the plow and following where God is leading you to go, but putting all of your energy into whatever it is that God has called you to do. Can your life be characterized the same way as William Borden? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets, not holding anything back, not turning around and running scared when things get tough, and living your life with no regrets because you have followed God's leading every step of the way. That is what it means to have our minds set on things above. We we have our, our lives, our minds oriented that way, and then God can use us wherever He's placed us on this earth right now and for years to come. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your Word. I thank you that we can read um, passages like this in Philippians and see um, what it means to be a Christian, to be a citizen of heaven, to focus on you to live our lives for you, God, I just pray for us that we would all be willing to follow wherever you lead, whether it is to the mission field or to the house across the street or to our coworker in the next cubicle. God, I just pray that you would work. You would work in our lives. You'd you'd help us as we focus our attention on you. That you would uh, direct our steps. And that through uh, the people that make up Community Baptist Church, you would glorify yourself. You'd make yourself known here in LaGrange and in Goldsboro and in, uh, in, in our whole region. God, that people would come to know you because your people are focused on the things that you've called us to. The things above, not on the trivial things that we can get caught up in. God, I just pray that You'd help us in that. You would, as our attention drifts, that You would refocus our attention and that we would, um, we would just do those things and believe those things that You've called us to do, to believe and to live out. We pray all of this in Your name and for Your glory. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, No evening tonight, no evening service tonight. No evening, cut off the time, (laughs) go to bed after lunch. No, no evening service tonight uh, starting the next week's Father's Day. So like was said in the announcements, starting the 28th, we'll have our combined care group. Then we'll have our 5th of July cookout, 4th of July on the 5th of July. uh, And then we'll, we'll move forward from there with our care groups in our summer schedule. Thanks guys, and we will see you here next week.